This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Teachers in the state's largest school district, Denver, are on strike in bitter cold temperatures. Some students have joined in solidarity by walking out going to hear many different perspectives coming up. First off, a few of the picketers read us their homemade signs. I have two signs here. One says, shame on DPS. I stand with DCTA. And the other side says, students, students, what do you see? I see my teacher standing up for me. My sign says, hey, Susanna, can you hear us now? The superintendent. Yes. How can you put students first if you put teachers last? It says, Denver kids deserve great teachers. The district and the union reached an impasse Saturday. A major sticking point is base pay versus bonuses. Negotiations have been going on for 15 months, but frustration has been building for years. In a few minutes, we'll meet a teacher who says she has no choice but to strike. Right now, though, Superintendent of Denver Public Schools, Susanna Cordova. She's only been in the top job since December. And when I caught up with her Sunday, she was sitting in an empty negotiating room, hoping the union would show up. I asked her about the path to a deal and what families should expect during the strike. With the exception of our preschool classrooms, uh, all of our schools will be open today. We're going to make sure that we have guest teachers, licensed DPS staff, and other DPS personnel who've all gone through the required background checks to be in our schools to help out with supervision. And it won't mean that the same kind of teaching is going on. What will it mean for a child's daily education? So it won't be a normal day. You know, I want to make sure that families know we're going to do everything possible to keep things as normal as possible. But anytime your teacher's not in school, it's not a normal day. We have shared lesson plans aligned to grade level expectations. Our licensed folks have been teachers. And so the people who maybe used to work in a school and now work in the curriculum department, for example, or who are coaches, uh, they have lots of experience in schools. And so they'll definitely be able to pull on those skills that they had from when they were uh, classroom teachers as well. Will you be in a classroom? You know, the most important thing I think we can do is actually be negotiating to get an agreement. And, you know, we were ready, willing, and able to spend the entire weekend doing that. Uh, I think it's really unfortunate that Sunday, a full day went by without any negotiations happening. Because the way you get this done is you keep talking. And the most important thing that I want to be available for is to work with the DCTA to get a deal. I wonder if the reason they didn't show up on Sunday is that the strike, in a way, is very important to them symbolically and as a public demonstration of the frustration they feel. Is that a message to you that this is a community that has had its fill and wants that kind of public display? Yeah, you know, I can't speak to their motivations. The governor in his letter really put out the charge to us both to negotiate in good faith. Um, And we've done that. We've brought multiple proposals with substantive changes, more money, more ways to earn salary increases, uh, an emphasis on our highest poverty schools. That's something that I'm very proud of, something that I'm very committed to. And it's something that's called for in the pro-comp ballot agreement that we have with our voters. Pro-comp was indeed passed by voters, and the idea was to spend money above and beyond on teachers who are working in particularly difficult schools. 
and the idea was to improve the performance of some of the lowest performing schools. That's correct. And so we want to make sure that we're adhering to the pro-comp ballot language. You know, I've gotten emails from parents and from teachers, not the bargaining team, who have said, like, get rid of pro-comp. Well, I don't want to get rid of pro-comp. Pro-comp gives us $33 million a year, and I think it's very important that we adhere to the principles that are outlined in pro-comp. One offer the district has made is to reduce its administrative staff, I think, by some 150 souls. What would that mean for the operation of district headquarters? You know, as I came into the role, one of the things I said was that I I felt it was really important that we had a more impactful central office. Um, And sometimes larger isn't better. Sometimes when there are more people, there's more distraction. And I want to name, these are really good people. Many of them are former teachers. They came into these positions with the goal of helping our schools do a better job. And I know how important it is for us to be able to get a deal with our teachers. And part of what I knew I was going to need to do was come up with more money to be able to do that. So we are uh, reducing, probably it'll be a net change of about 150 positions. Uh, Some of those are vacant right now, so it's not necessarily 150 people. But it will be a significant number of people whose jobs are eliminated. Could you give us an example of a type of job or a type of role that you have seen as not critical and that you would eliminate as part of this. Just help us understand. So it's less that there are positions that are not critical and more sort of a sense of when we had multiple teams doing similar work. Where was their overlap? You know, we haven't actually even talked with the people in these positions yet, and so I want to make sure that I give them the opportunity to hear from me directly before I'm talking uh, in public about positions. What do you think is the most salient argument the union has brought to the table. I wonder if there was an aha moment for you in these negotiations. So I think there are a couple things that our teachers are saying that are really clear and are about the proposal. And then I think there's other things that teachers are saying that actually aren't about the proposal, that aren't about these negotiations that I think are equally important. So, you know, our teachers are saying they need more money in their base salaries. I couldn't agree more. You know, I've been saying all along, you know, before I was the superintendent, while I was applying to be the superintendent, this is a place where my predecessor and I disagreed. I think we needed more money in base salaries. I have a son who's the age of an early career teacher who still lives at home um, because he couldn't afford to live on his own. I understand that. And I want to be able to put more money into our base salaries for our teachers. We've done significantly more work to put money into base salaries. So I definitely, definitely heard that. You know, one of the things I think that we're hearing uh, that's not about the negotiations is how teachers are feeling. And, you know, I think teachers are feeling disrespected. I think that they're feeling that people don't care about them. I think there's a lot that has happened over, you know, the past decade, not just in Denver, but around the country, that has created a landscape where it's hard to feel good always about being a teacher. I think that's terrible. I love our teachers. My best friend is a DPS teacher, and I know how hard she works. I know how much she cares about her students. Um, She works in one of our highest priority schools. She says it herself. She didn't go there for the money. It's great to get the money, and it's part of what is helping her stay committed and focused uh, about being there. What is the path out of this impasse, do you think? Yeah, the way this ends is with a deal, and the way you get a deal is you keep talking. I came to every single negotiation session. I'm all in. We offered to meet Sunday. We offered to meet Monday. The way this ends is with negotiations that end in a deal. Superintendent, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much.
Denver Public Schools Superintendent Susanna Cordova. The school district has set up a family helpline to answer any questions. It's staffed from 7.30 in the morning till 5.30 in the afternoon. And you'll find that number and a slew of other resources at CPR.org. Okay, so after speaking with the superintendent Sunday, I walked outside and saw a huddle of teachers getting ready to protest. Who'd like to talk to CPR News, I asked. Rachel Sandoval, that's who. She teaches fifth grade at Godsman Elementary in southwest Denver. She's also treasurer of the union, the Denver Classroom Teachers Association. Why aren't you inside negotiating? Our bargaining team has asked for a cooling off period. It's been a very long time of negotiating, and right now they just feel like there's no give um, actually regressing, and so they've just asked for some time to cool off. Do you think that's a good idea? Yes. Why? If you've been to our bargaining, um, you'll notice that a lot of our bargaining team, they're incredibly sick. Um, One of our bargainers, her child cried for her most of the day. So dad brought him and she held her son at the bargaining table yesterday. Our bargainers are exhausted. They're sick. They need time with their family. And so I think it's a good one day out of 15 months. I think they've earned that. Is there a part of you that wants to strike? And I ask that because... I have to think that striking is cathartic, that it's a way of expressing frustration and making the public know the depth of that frustration. There has not been one day that I have not woken up crying or throwing up in two weeks. I am physically sick to my stomach to think of not being with my kids. There is no part of me that wants to leave my classroom. But doing the right thing isn't always easy, right? And so that's where I'm stuck in this conundrum of philosophically, I have to strike. But when I got my kid, I have 29 children. Three of them came on grade level. Right now I have 55% on grade level. So I'm terrified of the regression if I'm not in my classroom. There is not one sub up there that can do my job better than I can, who knows those kids inside and out. We've created a culture, a family. I know them. They know me. And so I'm terrified. What I'm hearing from the superintendent is that the district has moved a lot. That They have a chart, in fact, that shows how far they've come in terms of money that they're offering and adjustments that they've made. And that they feel teachers need to do the same. What's your view? You can't tell us that we haven't made movement as well. We have. We're no longer willing to settle for crumbs. Um, Even with the adjustment that we're getting now, we're still going to be significantly lower than other districts who are going to go to their bargaining tables and bargain as well. So, I mean, no. What is the reality economically for you of being a teacher? And do you live in Denver? I live in Denver. I have... Three roommates. There is an adjunct professor, a nurse, and a teacher. That sounds like the beginning of a really bad joke because not a one of us can live in Denver independently without each other. I left corporate America and lost 20 plus thousand dollars to come teach. What were you doing? I was an accountant. Just this morning, I was talking to my father who said, I told you (laughs) when you went to get your teaching license that you would be the only person in America to go back to school to make less than what you are making now. He hates that I'm a teacher. He hates the disrespect and the financial instability that I have all the time. If any one of my roommates move out, we're scrambling. It's just that's that's crazy. I am 41 years old. Jesus, that is not okay. It's interesting you use the term disrespect. When I spoke with the superintendent, Susanna Cordova, I asked her what were her epiphanies 
in these negotiations? What has she learned about the teacher's perspective? She said two things. The first was that teachers want more base pay. The second thing was teachers don't feel respected. What do you mean when you say you don't feel respected? Oh man, where do I start? The fact that we are professionals, we have licenses, and our pay is significantly lower than what. Listen, when have you ever heard of a lawyer or a doctor having to go on strike because they can't afford to live where they work?、Um, let's talk about the fact that we're always. <laughs> My students perform、uh, have to do a survey on me of whether I'm a good teacher. Do I hurt their feelings? Am I nice to them? That's in my evaluation. I always have to worry about these testing that we know are not developmentally appropriate, nor are they responsive to our English language learners. But yet you're going to tie their ability to test well to my evaluation, and then I have to freak out every single year. Am I going to be ribbed? Am I going to be non-renewed? Am I going to? What's my test score is going to look like? My evaluations. I mean, there's just so. Much that encompasses the disrespect. Let's talk about our evaluations, which are so subjective that if you make your evaluator mad, you might have a really bad evaluation. And then what? Let's break some of that apart. This is fascinating. So, asking kids how they feel about you—what's so bad about that? People give me feedback all the time about the job I do. Is the person who's giving you feedback ten? Are they eight? Are they nine? I just disciplined you, and now you're going to turn around and give me a bad evaluation? Come on! Are you in a Title One school? I am. You get the bonus currently then for teaching there. So our bonus for next year is going to drop. Our neighborhood is being gentrified. We have lost 50 plus students every single year because they're moving out of our area. They can't afford it. So. This year we are 91.5 percent for reduced lunch, which means we're going to lose approximately $25,000 from our budget for next year. Because there are fewer students who are free and reduced lunch in poverty. Correct. And does that affect your pay? Of course it does. What have you learned about the district's point of view in these negotiations? So I told you some of what the superintendent feels she's learned. From your side, and I don't want to make this side versus side. But what have you learned? What epiphanies have you had about DPS's view in this? The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And sometimes I feel like some of the things they do in their minds, they're thinking that this is a good idea. However, the perception that we have is the exact opposite. For example, when they said all executive committee bonuses they're going to be restructured, they're not going to get them, and they're going to put them back in the pot, we applauded that. That's a great start. You're listening to us. There were cheers in the room. I was one of them. But then they turn right back around and said, "Oh, just kidding. We're going to put that in the retention bonuses." And again. When I asked the question, like why, why, why would you do that? Well, the answer was, well, if we take that money and divide it by all the teachers, it's not a big increase, but we'll still take it because you're listening to us. Even if it's just five dollars or ten dollars more in base pay, you're hearing philosophically what we're saying. When you turn around and up the thing that we're fundamentally fighting against, what do you think we're going to feel about that? You want more base pay as opposed to bonuses. It's all about that base. It's going to add every year, right? We're going to get, and it helps with our pay. It helps with our pension. When I first started in DPS, the growth bonus for our schools was four thousand dollars. Okay, this year <laughs> we worked our booties off to get our babies to grow. We got a thousand dollars, not including taxes. 
So that fluctuation is not. I can't buy a house. I'm never going to move out because it fluctuates so greatly. But if you leave my base alone and let it grow, I'm going to be able to one day move out. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you. Rachel Sandoval is a fifth grade teacher at Godsman Elementary School in southwest Denver. She's also treasurer of the Denver Classroom Teachers Association. That's the union. And let's continue to get perspective now on the Denver Public Schools teachers' strike. Remember, it's the first strike in the district in 25 years. And our education reporter, Jenny Brundine, is on the line. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. You're at South High School, is that right? That's right. I've been here since early this morning. And, uh, yeah, basically there was a picket line pretty strong one since about 6.30 in the morning, and it's just dissipated. The most interesting thing that happened here was around 8 o'clock, there was a a mass walkout of the students from the school, and they joined the teachers on the picket line, and it was a pretty emotional scene. Does that mean they're out of school for the whole day, or is that just a temporary walkout? They're out of school for the whole day. I mean, there's you see a few students are trickling back in, but one student told me that the substitute teachers had left. I'm not sure if I can verify that, but most of the students I see are leaving for the day. Um, yeah, they, they were very intent upon supporting their teachers, but... Um, you know, this is part of their protest is is to leave. And beyond that, they were all brought into the auditorium and not really given much information. And a lot of them, I just talked to one student who finds the whole thing very destabilizing. I think that's the word he used. He supports the teachers, but it kind of leaves him very confused and distracted and um, he just wants to go home and do do his homework right now. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people will be eager to know what is going on inside schools today. Are you finding that information as a reporter difficult to glean? Yeah, to be honest with you, I haven't had a chance to do that yet. I've mostly just talked to South High School students mm-hmm. who said that their teachers think that tomorrow... They could be looking at classes of, you know, 60 or more students. They really didn't see how it was possible to uh, get a lot of learning done in that atmosphere. I've been getting some some text messages from students elsewhere, but I haven't had a chance to to look at those as to what actually is going on inside. I imagine, though, for for middle and and elementary schools, I know the the district was going to put priority in sending substitutes to those Schools, so I'll be interested to find out how much uh, learning happened in, in those schools. And we are in touch, I think, with some student journalists, CPR News is, and so we may have their view from inside schools. Uh, Jenny, what's next for negotiations? What, how does a deal get reached, do you think? That is the big question, Ryan. Early this morning, union negotiators spoke to reporters And we're pretty adamant in the sticking point, which is that they believe that incentives, uh, the district just announced in their latest proposal that they would be raising one of the incentives for teachers that work at high priority. Those are really challenging schools, Mm -hmm. which actually brought the two sides even further apart, even though the district says their proposal altogether will raise teachers pay 11 percent next year. That's not 
the issue right now that the union is focused on. They're focused on taking more of that incentive pay and folding into the base and actually structuring a pay schedule that looks looks like other districts. In other words, gives teachers the same opportunities to advance in their pay as other districts do. So what I'm hearing from both sides is they're both very committed to the district keeping those incentives, the union wanting those incentives to be folded into base pay. Got it. I asked Rob Gould. Very quickly, you know, Jim. If, if, anyhow, it, uh, I'm just, it'll be a very interesting day in bargaining tomorrow. Tomorrow. That's CPR's education reporter, Jenny Brundine. And I noticed something about the negotiations that fell apart this weekend. They were musical. Teachers modified a pop song, Megan Trainer's All About That Bass. It's all about that bass, about that bass, no bonus. It's all about that bass, about that bass. Meanwhile, Jenny tweeted the teachers were singing Twisted Sisters' We're Not Gonna Take It. That song played prominently last year in Oklahoma, where educators protested, including music teachers with instruments. <laughs> Nothing like the power of a tuba. Turns out there's a long tradition of music in the labor movement, like the Little Red Songbook from the Industrial Workers of the World. It came out in the early 1900s. A man named Joe Hill, who became an icon of working-class resistance, wrote several songs in the songbook. A while back, I spoke with Denver author William Adler, Hill's biographer, about music's effect on union organizing. Well, I think it did a couple of things. One, it was a way to unite workers of different tongue, different ethnicity, different nationality. If they couldn't necessarily speak a common language, they could all sing a common song. And for the most part, the IWW used familiar melodies and they wrote their own words to those melodies. So it made it a lot easier to memorize the songs as well. The other thing it did, I think, was it served as a weapon of social protest. They targeted uh, particular issues or people or institutions and poked fun at them and, and also offered some sort of hope for workers. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. This is CPR News. Fixing Congress is a tall order, but something that Colorado might show one place to start. I think the United States Congress could use a gavel amendment. I'm Sam Brash, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. We have a new episode about one very important Colorado rule, that every bill gets a hearing and a vote. Bill 1031 passes. Bill 58 fails. What it's meant here and whether something like it could ever help that whole mess in D.C. Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. With Democrats in control of the state legislature, oil and gas drilling in Colorado could soon see new limits. It's fascinating because even though Democrats prevailed last November, a measure that would have significantly curtailed drilling failed on the statewide ballot. Today, we delve into what comes next with two CPR reporters. First, Grace Hood, who covers energy and the environment, explains what's at stake. Lowell and Margie Lewis look like most retired couples. They travel, they volunteer. One thing they didn't expect to have to deal with in retirement? It's an industrial site back there, just here plopped in the middle of our our neighborhood. 
Lowell points just behind their house at two dozen oil and gas wells built in 2017. Before the pad was drilled, the Lewises spent hours protesting it. They appealed to Greeley City Council. Then they went to state regulators on the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. It was obvious to me that they are here to politely listen to people tell them what they're doing wrong and then go about their business. And their business is, seems to be to approve oil and gas sites. Pretty much no matter what. Environmental advocates like the Lewises want state regulators' top priority to be health and safety. They're frustrated because companies can follow all state and local rules and be allowed to drill explosives 500 feet near homes. Environmental groups like Colorado Rising say that distance isn't safe. Ann Lee Foster is with the group. The issue ranges from concerns of water pollution to air pollution, explosions, It's a massive issue to tackle. Colorado Rising was behind a failed statewide ballot issue last November that sought greater distance between wells and homes. The state's new Democratic leaders have vowed to take big action on oil and gas. But Foster is skeptical this year will produce meaningful action. We know the Dems are have a tendency to make political calculations as opposed to really standing up for their constituents. And this might be one of those issues that um, falls to the wayside of lack of political will. While Foster worries about a nothing burger legislative session, the oil industry is worried about an overreach. If you look at what we just went through last fall, Coloradans rejected extreme setbacks that ban this industry. That's Dan Haley. He heads up the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. He says companies are willing to work with communities to ease concerns. He points to 2018 when companies agreed to new restrictions on how close they can drill near schools. Haley says the industry will continue to do this, but there are limits. We've seen this happen historically. When one party controls everything, they tend to overreach. So I think the elected leaders who are who are there now really have that responsibility to uh, to govern responsibly and to not overreach. Haley says he and the industry will fight legislation that could hurt oil production or jobs. A big flashpoint in recent years has been how much of a say local communities should get on where drilling takes place. Marilee Maza is an anti-fracking activist and a member of the Lafayette City Council. She worries that any potential legislation won't produce enough change for local leaders. And I hear a lot of blather. I hear a lot of baffle gab. I mean, I don't see anybody taking the bull by the horns and saying we've got to deal with these local communities and we've got to support them. The group of stakeholders on this issue doesn't get much more diverse, from oil companies to keep-it-in-the-ground environmentalists to local governments. Democrats will have an incredibly difficult needle to thread on oil and gas issues this session. But so far, there haven't been any bills. To find out why, I reach out to someone who knows the state capitol backwards and forwards, CPR's Benta Berkland. Hey, Benta. Hey. So what's the holdup? It's not necessarily surprising. We've got a new governor and new leaders in the House and the Senate. Lots of different ideas and strategies and working them out can take some time. But the top Democratic leaders in both chambers say passing substantive oil and gas legislation is a huge priority. So what's going to be in some of those bills? Well, first off, it looks like it's probably going to be just one large comprehensive bill. I think we could expect some of the things we heard about in your story. More local control, changing the mission of oil and gas regulators to make health and safety the top priority. Regulators would also no longer be charged with fostering energy development. 
Democratic Senator Mike Foote of Lafayette has pushed for tougher regulations in previous years, and he says crafting the bill this time is much different. Our bills now have a fighting chance. We have to make sure that we do it right. In the past, the oil and gas bills that I introduced were introduced for a specific reason. I thought that they faced uphill battles, and in fact, they did. But we still had to push the issue forward. Not on the table this year, increasing the setback distances between oil and gas drilling and homes. Democrats feel that would be tone deaf, especially after voters rejected that same policy in November. Still, some in the industry say what Democrats are talking about could actually harm the industry more than these higher setbacks. And Republican Senator John Cook of Greeley agrees. He's worried Democrats don't care if they shut down the industry entirely. If they make it difficult for oil and gas, they're going to pack up and say, you know what, it's business environment is much better in North Dakota, Texas, Oklahoma. We're going we're gonna to leave the state. He says Democrats need to think long term about the hundreds of millions of dollars the oil and gas industry adds to the state budget and the good paying jobs going to be a change for oil and gas. It's just different than how they've been able to operate for so long. That's Democratic Speaker of the House Casey Becker from Boulder. She says Democrats don't want to put the industry out of business. But with her party now in complete control, they're ready to make some big changes. You know, oil and gas basically had just veto power over anything that we wanted to do to modernize oil and gas statutes. This is one of those issues where because there was so much pent up frustration and so little that happened for so long, the sides are pretty far apart. And so far, Republicans aren't involved in the discussions about this upcoming legislation. Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg of Boulder says he still thinks passing a comprehensive update would ultimately help the industry. He thinks it could prevent extreme ballot initiatives that companies have to spend millions of dollars to try and defeat. The biggest problem for them right now is that there's no confidence in what the future will be. People don't know if they'll have a job in a year because they don't know what the regulatory landscape will be or if there will be another ballot measure that will go even further than what a lot of people would want to go. So it's in their interest, I think, to negotiate and to come up with something that's common sense. If anything stands in the way of this bill, it's the state Senate. Democrats only have a two-seat majority there, so that means the energy industry will try to sway moderate or politically vulnerable senators. Benta, Ryan jumping in here with some questions for you and Grace. Uh, One thing that caught my ear is that you, Benta, are hearing from Democratic lawmakers that they want this policy to have real teeth. But Grace, activists in the field seem to be skeptical of that. Do you think the policies Benta described will be enough to satisfy fractivists and homeowners? I think that's really where it all depends on what the details are in the legislation. I think activists, uh, it's worth pointing out, are looking at some other avenues here. Uh, They've certainly indicated their interest in pursuing other ballot measures in future years, as well as lawsuits. Okay, let's dive deeper into some of the policies Democrats are considering Penta, you mentioned two, so giving local governments more say and changing the priorities for regulators. What else might be in this giant bill? Well, forced pooling is another area Democrats say they want to address. Forced pooling. Yes. um, (laughs) You know, that's when a group of mineral rights are pooled together and leased. And this can happen even when some of the people who own those rights don't want to see them developed. So it's not clear yet what kind of changes Democrats are contemplating, but just that they want to take on this issue. And Democrats may also want to change the makeup of the types of people 
that serve on the commission that regulates the energy industry. And I can't emphasize enough what a big deal this could potentially be for residents. For example, the couple in my story that we just heard from, uh, you know, there's real frustrations right now that the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, they're the ones that approve all the permits. Uh, You know, of course, they do reject some permits, but I think environmental advocates are really frustrated that they approve the majority of permits. And, uh, you know, that perception's out there. So residents are really looking for ways to change the dynamic of the regulators who make up that body. Okay, what's at stake politically for Democrats over this issue? Well, I think it's safe to say whenever this legislation drops, it'll be one of the most contentious fights of this session. Um, There's already a poll going out into some of the Democratic Senate districts asking people if they would vote against a lawmaker who backed greater setbacks. Now, it's worth noting setbacks aren't going to be in this bill, oh. but th- this poll kind of lays the groundwork for future opposition tactics. So it's going to be a policy fight. It'll be a political fight. It's also an area where a new Democratic majority, they want to show they can solve problems. And for a portion of the Democratic base, this is why they voted for Democrats. And the whole issue can be seen as somewhat of a litmus test. Okay, a lot on the line for (laughs) Democrats. I want to talk a bit about the issue of local control. So here's what Governor Jared Polis said in my recent interview with him. We want to formalize the local control piece and make sure that communities have a seat at the table around siting decisions that affect their quality of life. We want to make sure that that you don't think that's a robust enough power yet at this point. It's a very vague gray area right now. And that's why you often see lawsuits when cities and counties exert themselves. Uh, We really want to make sure that there's a earlier stage in the process that cities and counties can play a role. I also strongly believe that we should put health and safety first. Grace, you clearly got an earful about the desire for communities to have more say in oil and gas permitting. Benta, you covered former Governor John Hickenlooper, who was a former petroleum geologist and who some thought was too cozy with the industry. What are Democrats telling you about the dynamic with this new governor, Governor Polis? Already they're seeing it's a lot different. A lot of Democrats felt like Hickenlooper was somewhat of a barrier to getting more stringent changes passed. And they don't feel that way about Polis. They say his team has been engaged and he really wants to get something done. You know, I, I really think, you know, to a certain extent, the industry saw Hickenlooper as an ally. And with Polis now in power, I think the industry is being very careful not to pick a fight with Polis before they have to. They say they believe his he's his own man and not just an arm of the environmental movement. Yeah. And Grace, this is just the oil and gas legislation. Democrats are planning a whole separate package on climate change policies. And that's very little you know, going to affect this industry, too. Yeah. And of course, this is a governor that has laid out a very specific plan for wanting to get 100 percent renewable energy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, I suppose the former governor would probably have told you something like, well, I got some of the strongest methane rules passed in the country. Uh, I imagine that that's something we'll hear if uh, former governor Hickenlooper becomes presidential candidate Hickenlooper. Absolutely. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, and our energy and environment reporter, Grace Hood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. People here love their outdoor activities, but one listener has an intriguing Colorado Wonders question. Which of those activities are the riskiest? CPR health reporter John Daly found the answer is complicated. Casey Peters is a Denver resident. 
She works at a solar company, and her family frequently heads to the hills. But as a mom with a two-year-old, she started worrying about risks. As she took on more difficult hikes, she started to realize... It's not a sure thing that everyone gets through these hikes unscathed. Ann Peters says she was scared to death of skiing. Because I think it's inherently dangerous. You know, Sonny and Cher, Sonny died skiing. So Peters decided to send a query to us at Colorado Wonders. Is hiking any more dangerous than going skiing? Or is it any more dangerous than climbing or whitewater rafting or all the other things that we like to do here in Colorado? To find out, I headed to the Coloradoist, outdoorsiest place I could think of, the annual outdoor retail snow show. Today, everyone's setting up their booths, getting ready for the exposition. That's Eric Henderson. He's a veteran of mountain sports and public relations. As we walk through the Colorado Convention Center, it's a beehive of activity as folks in plaid shirts and fleece vests unpack boxes of the latest and greatest gear. Henderson has some insight into Casey Peters' question. A sports media company he works for, Teton Gravity Research, posted an infographic on their website. The title? Your Chance of Dying, Ranked by Sport and Activity. Henderson says atop the list, probably no surprise, a sport involving jumping off a building, bridge, or cliff using a parachute. The number one is base jumping. Uh, you have one in 60 chances of dying in base jumping. The chance of dying skiing is shown as one in 1.4 million participants. For mountain hiking, it's one in 16,000 annually. Now, these numbers aren't entirely reliable. They're dated for one thing. And Henderson says the insurance company's site they came from is no longer online. So best to take those with a big grain of salt. And that's the rub. He says it's hard to quantify risks for outdoor activities that aren't well documented. So look at avalanche fatalities, right? So avalanche fatalities are trackable, but avalanche incidents are rarely trackable. So how should recreationalists evaluate the relative risks? Every time it's asked, I have to tell them I just don't have the answer. That's Lauren Pierpoint, who says she gets the question often. At CU's School of Public Health, she helped research high school sports injuries. For years, that project has been able to thoroughly track injuries in practice and competition because they use athletic trainers as data reporters. Pierpoint says there's nothing comparable for outdoor activities. Most recreational sports, uh, outdoor recreational sports for, that the Coloradoan might be interested in, Almost all of them have no good data. So you can't really rely on data to decide what activity might be safest. Instead, perhaps the best advice, to be as prepared as you can, even on what may seem like an innocent hike on a late spring day. That's what Melissa McQueen learned. McQueen and her family hiked Mount Evans one day, but they got lost and things turned bad. A storm hit and they spent a freezing night on the mountain, where McQueen took off wet boots and put her feet in a stocking cap. And I just remember at one point during the night, my feet bounced together, and they made this kind of crunching noise. And I always say it's like two frozen chicken breasts hitting each other. And it was at that point where I think I started to realize that this might be more serious. McQueen told the story to Colorado Matters. She ended up in the hospital and lost most of her toes. One lesson, she says, is expect the unexpected. She still hikes, but carries a GPS and extra warm clothes. We try to be respectful of the mountain and the weather now. People talk about, you know, like, 
owning a 14er or whatever. And we're like, no, no, the 14er let you come up to the summit that day. You didn't own the 14er. Back at the outdoor show, that thinking resonates with Eric Poor. He's a backcountry ski expert. He calls our Colorado Wonders query a pretty loaded question because any activity you do has inherent risks to it. So a lot of it comes down to how much planning you do and how much research you do into that activity and then how much training you have. Poor says ultimately it depends on each individual. The riskiest activity, he says, is often the one you know the least about. I'm John Daly, CPR News. So what are your questions about our state? Submit them through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. 120 years ago, Maurice Rose was born. You may recognize that name. One of Denver's biggest hospitals is named after him. Major General Rose became the highest-ranking Jewish officer in the U.S. Army during World War II. He led the 3rd Armored Division, known as Spearhead, and was killed on the battlefield in the final weeks of the war. Marshall Fogel of Denver has written a book about Rose. We spoke back in August. Welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me to CPR. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Why was the 3rd Armored Division, which he led, uh, known as Spearhead? Because Rose decided to name the 3rd Armored Division Spearhead once he gained uh, the position of Major General over the 3rd Armored Division. Spearhead meaning the tip of the spear, and they are the first into battle. The first into battle, and what does that mean in terms of how they're equipped and what they faced? They're equipped with... uh, Tanks, artillery. If you stretch the 3rd Armored Division, which is known as a heavy armored division, in one straight line, it would go for 10 miles. Oh, my goodness. So it's sizable and it's armored. Yes, there's only two heavy armored divisions in World War II in Europe, the 3rd and the 2nd. Being assigned to being the the head of the 3rd Armored Division was the most prestigious award given to a soldier. Eisenhower was looking for a fighter, just like Lincoln was looking for Grant. And Eisenhower found the best field commander in the war, General Maurice Rose. Maurice Rose, uh, who was essentially then a tank commander. How did he do that differently from others? He fought from the front. The men respected him. Uh, He always dressed in a cavalry outfit. He was immaculate. So they called him the immaculate killer of Nazis. He was relentless in pursuing the enemy. And the men respected him because he took the same risks as they did in war. That was unusual to have someone so high ranking be that far forward. One soldier reported to me when he first saw General Rose coming to, to, into battle, he said, I thought Caesar was riding six in a chariot with six white horses. They loved him. They donated $35,000 to build Rose Hospital, the men of the 3rd Armored Division, after Rose was killed. He led many wartime assaults. Uh, the Battle of Carrington in France shortly after the D-Day invasion. That was really a turning point for him, wasn't it? There were, there were some significant battles. Carrington was between Omaha and Utah Beach. It was uh, captured from the Germans by the Airborne Division, who was trapped. Rose led his soldiers into Carrington, stopped the counterattack. German papers later said that had Rose not taken Carrington, they could have rolled up Normandy. 
Secondly, in Operation Cobra to get out of the uh, French force, Rose broke the defenses of the 7th Army, saved Patton's uh, uh, supply lines, and that's when Eisenhower said, we found our grant. We got the, the right guy, the best field commander in the war. That is truly when he proved himself. What was the mission on that he was killed in? He was killed in, at Parrington. He drove his forces 100 miles in a 24-hour period, which is a record that stands to this day to surround the pocket where the Ruhr Industries was located and 325,000 Nazis. Rose was killed leading his troops into battle to capture Paderborn, Germany in uh, March 30th, 1945. What do you know specifically about how he died? He was looking for his troops, and it was dusk, and he uh, was trapped, and he wanted to get around in his Jeep some Tiger tanks, uh, which were part of the Nazi forces. They trapped him between a plum tree and a tank, got out of his Jeep, put his hands up, and he was killed uh, with 14 bullets in his body. Some people believe to this day he was murdered as a prisoner of war. If that's true, then he's the highest-ranking commander in World War II to be killed in war and combat as a POW. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about Major General Maurice Rose, for whom Rose Medical Center is named. There's a new book about Rose written by Marshall Fogel of Denver, who joins us. Rose wasn't a West Point graduate. How did his military career take shape? Rose dropped out of East Denver High School. He never graduated high school, ran away from home, joined the military. His mother had to go get him. And then finally, at the age of 17, they, his parents, uh, Rabbi Rose and his mother, allowed him to go to war. He was wounded in France, left the army, and went back. And the reason Rose was a handsome man, six foot three. Uh, I don't know if I, the book would have sold if he didn't look like Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> you have a photo of him on the cover. Uh, yes, and so to make the long story short, uh, he went to war colleges nine years out of the 20 years from 1920 to 1940, and he became uh, a star pupil. He learned how to fight. He learned how to win a war. He learned how to win over uh, the people that he uh, commanded. And he was a darling of, of the generals that saw him in action. Do you think he was insecure about his education? I think he was driven to be educated. So he probably had probably preceded the fact he was insecure. He never went to West Point. And that, right. that's amazing that he, he just uh, learned how to fight. What was it like for Jews in the military during Rose's time? It was as bad as you could imagine. The 1920s, we had Henry Ford, a, a rabid anti-Semite, George Patton, a rabid anti-Semite, uh, the, uh, Father Coughlin, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, anti-Semitism was rampant. And in 1918, the uh, government formed the Secret Military Intelligence Division, which uh, wasn't made declassified until the 70s, keeping Aryans in the service and keeping Jews and other minorities out. They taught social Darwinism. Rose had to overcome. Boy, did he have to overcome. Well, I think what's also fascinating about this time is that in, in World War II, you obviously have the U.S. fighting, you know, rampant anti-Semitism in the form of Nazism. 
Uh, and yet, as a Jew in the armed forces, he's both fighting Nazis, but also fighting anti-Semitism, I guess, within his own country, his own ranks, though, you know, though in a different form. It's almost as if God gave you the answer. The first soldier to move into Germany in World War II to break the German border, capture the first German town, shoot down a German airplane, was the Jewish general Maurice Rose. How biblical is that? How biblical is that? <laughs> Denver's Jewish community chose to honor him by naming the hospital after him. And I think you said that his fellow soldiers rallied to help make that happen. Why was it decided that this should be the route to honor him? Because he was, first of all, he's the first real Jewish national hero. His death was was so bereaved by General Marshall Eisenhower, the president of the United States. All the newspapers reported it, and they felt that naming it in honor of a Jewish war hero would grant the hospital national publicity to raise money to build this hospital, which is the first to allow a black doctor on the staff. So there's a legacy here that's important to our Colorado community. Marshall, thanks for sharing this story with us. I won't drive by Rose Hospital the same way again. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Denver author Marshall Fogel's book is Major General Maurice Rose, the most decorated battle tank commander in U.S. military history. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner.